All right, everybody. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up with us to Colossians chapter 2. We are working our way through Colossians this summer on these Thursday evenings. If, if you're new or if this is your first time here, uh, we do a time of teaching right now. And then at the end of the teaching, we have about a 20-minute period at the very end of the night before 7.30 where we talk around our tables answering some questions that Scott wrote based on our passage. And that's been a really special part for me. I've really enjoyed that this summer, uh, those discussions around the tables. Um, Jerry? Uh, yeah, we are so excited about this, uh, this passage tonight. Before reading verses 6 to 15, which we hope to camp on, uh, we'd like to go back last week just for a little, little bit. And these are things that got me this week, a day late and a dollar short. No, didn't help last week at all, but I sure was excited about as uh, this week. This verse 24, you might remember, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, that's just not easy for anybody to rejoice in our sufferings. But the great news is, is we are not alone to do that. We're certainly commanded to. Romans 5, rejoice in your sufferings. James 1, have pure joy in your trials. We know that we're not just commanded to do it, but there's so many reasons that we would do it. But what I... What got me this week a little bit more is the goal, one of the reasons that we do this, again, is in verse 25, to make the Word of God fully known. To, wait, to make the Word of God fully known. So part of what I think Paul's saying here is that he could rejoice in his sufferings for the sake of the church, and that made the Lord fully known. That made God fully known. That's our goal. And then God chose to do that in verse 27, um, to show his glory to the Gentiles, which is Christ. Him we proclaim. Those three words got me again. Christ. We proclaim Christ. We make him fully known. That's our goal. I hope that's your goal and then this was the, the great news. And Mark, I would, I would love, you've really helped us in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 before on this. But 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There's two things that seem separate there. We toil, we struggle. In fact, we struggle twice. We struggle in chapter 2. Double struggle. Verse 1. We toil and we double struggle, and God does what? He gives us the energy. And we would say, okay, wait a second here. Who's doing what? Right? Who's on first here? Am I doing this it or is God doing this? And what I love is that both are happening, and Paul has no problems stressing both of them. So, I think we ought to, too. Sometimes I feel like, oh, man, could it be that we're out of balance, that we're stressing one too much? I don't think we can stress either one too much. It's not, in my mind, I love percentages. It's not a 50-50 deal. It's not a 70-30 deal. It's 100-100, right? We have to struggle harder than we've ever struggled. We're not struggling hard enough, right? Who would say we're really giving the effort we ought to give for God's glory? I don't think any of us would. We need to struggle. We need to toil. How do we do it? Through God's energy. He's the one that does it. And Mark, that Philippians 2 
12 and 13, Paul again in the back-to-back verses doesn't seem to say these don't work together. They work perfectly together. They harmonize. Yeah, if you, if you want to just flip just one page or so to the left of Philippians 2, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, uh, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So just pause there. This is, this is extraordinarily command-oriented, right? So he says, as you have always obeyed, that's something that you do. And then he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's something that we, we participate in, we do. And then verse 13 gives the ground for that. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we are commanded to work out our salvation. God is the one by his grace working in us these things that please him. So the will to do what is right and the actual works that we carry out in the Lord. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Ephesians 2. God created you beforehand for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Uh, so the idea there being that God has planned out these works for us to accomplish. He then fills us with his spirit, gives us the will to work for his good pleasure. And then we are responsible to work that out, to live that out, to actually actualize it, to do the thing. Uh, to, as one person has said, to act the miracle. The, the, the yeah. miracle is the changing of our heart. And then we act it out. We, we live in consistent harmony with what God is doing and, in our life. Yes. And if you just read verse 12, I'd not be terrified. We're, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is fear and trembling. All over, double struggle again. But God's the one that does it. And it just brings so much joy, and that's what we can have through our suffering then. We can suffer well because God gives us the energy to do it and promises to do it. And he who began that good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. Certainly a joy to see that um, in, in you all. And uh, it's, it's a great joy. Scott, would you read 6 to 15 um, and maybe pray for us before we get to work? Sure. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these nights uh, we can gather here. We're, we're once again thankful for all the work that goes in, sort of behind the scenes, so many people helping, volunteering. Uh, getting the food, preparing uh, everything for us. We're just so thankful for the, the, the humble servants in our church that, that use their, their gifts uh, for your glory and our good. And uh, we're thankful for, for this chance to open your word, this rich and meaty passage from Colossians 2. I pray you'd help us to be faithful to your word, and uh, I pray that all of us would be attentive to your word, that we'd be challenged and uh, be changed by your word, especially as we consider these incredible realities that have happened to us uh, in Christ, that we'd walk away just 
filled with wonder at these glorious realities of forgiveness of sins and uh, just, just the wonder of Christ and his, his work for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark, how about six and seven? Yeah, so six and seven, which we'll read again in just a second, really is one of the central commands, I think, of the book because it, it sort of summarizes and encapsulates a lot of what's going on with the Colossians and what Paul's addressing. And these would be great life verses for a Christian to, to kind of say, this is what I want to commit myself to. Let me read it again, six and seven of chapter two. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, I, you know, let me, let me take you to another passage. Tur turn to the left a few books to Galatians chapter 3, and I want to show you, not, not identical, but a similar idea here. Galatians chapter 3, as you are turning there, there can be a temptation in the Christian life to start really excited about Jesus. Remember in the Revelation, it talks about, I think it's the Ephesian church has lost its first love. Uh, this, this passionate, zealous feeling that we have upon first converting. Now, not, that's not true of all of us. Some of us were very young when we were converted. We don't even necessarily know the exact time we were converted. We may not have had some passionate first love experience. But for some people, especially if you were a little bit older when you first came to know the Lord, you remember that with vivid detail. And it, it just, you can see the before and the after, and there's a very clear turning point, and you had this intense, passionate love for Christ. And we start excited about the Lord. We can't get enough of the gospel. We're reading the Bible like crazy. For a lot of us, that's an early ex conversion experience. And then what can happen after a period of time goes by is we start to kind of grow a little bit tired spiritually, maybe a little bit bored with some of these things about Jesus. Yes, we've been over this before. We know the gospel. We get that. And there can become sort of this, this gnawing sense. There's got to be something more exciting out there. So, uh, you know, it, it, Jesus is the ABCs of Christianity. You know, Jesus died for me. That's the ABCs. That's so important. I, I've got that. I'm excited about that. But I've kind of been about, I've been excited about that for a while now. Now it's time to move on to something a little bit more interesting, a little bit more, uh, you know, at a higher level of spirituality. And there could be a temptation to sort of leave Jesus and the gospel behind and to try to move on to greater things as if there were greater things than that. And, and you see a similar thing here in Galatians 3. So look at, um, uh, he, he ends chapter 2 by explaining the gospel very clearly. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell over you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And just pause there. We don't know of a single Galatian who was actually physically present when Jesus was crucified. From what we know, as far as we know, everyone in this church, none of them, none of the people in this church saw the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet Paul says, before your eyes, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's referring to when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the glory and beauty of the gospel of Christ crucified, and it is as though you were there yourself. It's as though you saw it with your own eyes. It came with such power. And so they were so overwhelmed by the cross at first. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That is hearing the gospel, hearing Christ crucified with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? But you see here, with both the Colossians 
and the Galatians, there was this tendency to go, well, we were excited about those basic issues about the gospel. Now, let's move on to the flesh and try to kind of gain our strength in another way. Let's kind of move on past the Holy Spirit and the gospel. And let's try to do this in our own strength. And if you turn back to Colossians chapter 2, Paul is dealing with, not, not identical, but in some way a related issue. Let me read it one more time. 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, he refers to their conversion, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So a central, maybe the central theme of Colossians is, if you have Jesus, you have 100% of all that you need for living the Christian life. You don't need Jesus plus anything to complete you, to fill you up, to give you what you really want deep down. You don't have to move on to some other option. You have all that you need in Jesus. And that's why this letter is exalting Jesus. He made everything. He is very God of very God, right? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were made through him and for him. He's also the redeemer, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have first place, preeminence. And he's, he, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And so if I, a sinful, flawed, redeemed individual, if I am in Christ, my goodness, I have all the fullness, all the blessing, all the joy, all the peace, all that I could ever want and need is in Jesus. And so I don't need to move on from him. I simply need to be more rooted and built up in, in Jesus as, as he is. Scott. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I, I think one commentator talked about, it's like the idea of being planted. It's sort of like people mentioned Psalm 1. You want to send our root system deep and wide into Jesus. And that's what they were saying. And Alistair Begg told the story of it was a very windy week. I guess the time he spoke in this passage, I think it was years ago, he said trash was just blowing down the street. It was trash day and trash was just flying around everywhere. And he said he came out of his house and he looked next door and they had just planted this tree and it was completely toppled over because he said it had no root system. There, there, were no root system, there was not a root system in place of this tree, so it just got blown over. In the same sense, we need to send our root system deep and wide down into Christ, deep and wide into gospel soil. I mean, that's the best soil that we can get. And there can be the temptation, like you're saying, to, to move on. Like, I've got the gospel. Well, no, you actually haven't gotten the gospel. We, we need to soak in, in gospel soil, marinate on the personal work of Jesus, marinate uh, on the promises in the Bible and on, the, on gospel and through, through the word of God. Because if we don't do this, then we will begin to dry up. And you've talked about like irritability is, is a sin that will show up in your life where you know something's wrong. Or if, for me, it's, it can be lack of thanksgiving, which he's going to talk about thanksgiving in here. Ingratitude rises up, irritability, complaining. If that starts happening out here, in your life, you know something's wrong down in, I, I'm drying up, my, my root system is drying up, I'm, I'm, I'm going away from gospel soil, I'm going away from the person in Christ. So I think those can be, even we can do this subtly, like it can just happen subtly and, all, and we need to see these red flags that are telling us, okay, wait a minute, I, I need to get back rooted in Christ and, and in the gospel. I like that part about Thanksgiving, Scott, thanks for mentioning that. Turn one more page if you would. In a couple of weeks we'll be here. But look at, I think I might have said that joy was mentioned eight times. If I said that, that might have been a big fat lie. Kind of forget that I said that if I did. I think it's Thanksgiving, and that might not be right either. You might have to forget that next week. But look at three times in a row. I find this so amazing, the stress on Thanksgiving. Fifteen, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with what? Thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Christians 
ought to be thankful people. There's no reason not to be thankful. That may be too many double negatives there. And unbelievers, I don't think there is a truly thankful unbeliever. They're thankful for their circumstances sometimes, but not grateful from the heart like we can be. What a joy that we can show others a different way in our, in our thankfulness. And Scott, I think you're right. It's one of those things, a day or two without the word and marinating on the gospel, and uh, boy, I know my thankfulness goes south fast. Thank, with thankfulness, I, I think one of the reasons Paul is emphasizing thanksgiving in this letter, and he emphasizes it all over the place, but one reason it may be prominent in Colossians is because thanksgiving for Christ is the opposite of what the Colossians are being tempted to fall into. You understand that? So, like, it, it, you're either thankful for something or you're kind of sick of it, right? Th those are your two options. Those are the two kind of in, in, pendulum edges of your emotions. So, if you're really, really grateful for something, you're not taking it for granted. You're, you're not just going, oh, this thing, you know, whatever. You're, 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 you're appreciating it in a fresh way every time you're thankful for it. In that case, you're not growing bored with it. You're not growing, it's not growing dull in your eyes. Whereas on the other side, if Christ is becoming more the, the thing that I used to be uh, obsessed about, but now I've moved on to other things, he becomes more something you take for granted. He's kind of in the back seat a little bit of your life, spiritually speaking. And so Paul's emphasizing, no, fresh, vital thanksgiving in a day-by-day -day basis for the gospel, for Christ, for what Christ has done, for who Christ is, for what he's doing right now, upholding all things by the power of his word. In him, all things hold together, he said in Colossians 1. That means right now, like your circulatory system, I don't even know what that is exactly. That's working right now because Jesus is telling it to, right? I mean, all that's going on physically with your body, with your soul, with your, with, with your salvation, it's being held together by Jesus. And if I can just be aware of that, how can you, I mean, if you're really thinking about that, how can you not be amazed by that? How can you not have a sense of wonder at Christ upholding all things every, every moment? Yeah, I, I've talked about this a ton at our church. I know if you've been here at all, I've talked about this theme of thanksgiving. I mean, this is a great verse, uh, Colossians 2, 7, the end of it, abounding in thanksgiving. I mean, just to, to ask ourselves, is that how we live? Is it true that thanksgiving is just overflowing the perimeter of our lives regularly? And I, I've talked about this a bunch, but I'm going to come at this slightly different, tell a quick story uh, that D.A. Carson shared about this guy who was a missionary. Uh, he was a young man. He was six foot four. I think he was a tall, slender guy. He went to the mission field as a single man, and he went to Bolivia. He learned uh, the language very quickly, and he met an, a lady down there who was a missionary. She was single. They got engaged. They got married. They had a daughter together. His mission organization wanted him to come back and uh, get a Ph.D. Uh, where Carson was, at the seminary Carson was teaching at, so he could be better uh, equipped to train these pastors that he was working with in Bolivia. So he came there, and he started to train. And six months into his training, his wife was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. And so they had to have, it was a, he had to quit the schooling. It was, a, it was an intense year of suffering. that She had to have uh, chemo. Uh, uh, massive surgery, and she survived after the year was over. So he returned to the, the school and continued his studies, and six months later, he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. And so then he had to quit again, and he went to the doctors, and they, they basically said there was no hope, and he was going to have to go to hospice care. But then uh, his mission organization said, you should go to the Mayo Clinic. So they sent him to the Mayo Clinic, and the Mayo Clinic said uh, they couldn't guarantee anything, but they could, had some experimental drugs they could try, and what they did, they operated on him. They removed 90% of his stomach and he was left with 10% of his stomach. They gave him some, some experimental drugs for abdominal cancer, and miraculously, he was healed. He, Carson said he had to eat every three or four hours, but he was healed. He goes back, begins to study again. Six months later, his wife, is, cancer returns, and she dies. And so I think he had to leave again and deal with all that, the sorrow of that, and then eventually he returned again to the seminary, and finally he graduated. 
Their daughter, I think, was three when all this began. And by the end, when he, when he graduated, his daughter was, uh, I think, 10 or so, or nine and a half or something like that. And then Carson's church invited this man to come and speak at his church before he went back to Bolivia. And he said that he talked for 40 minutes. He was exposi- using exposition of different scriptures, but he said he talked for 40 minutes. He said the 40 minutes were taken up, Carson said, with thanking God for his goodness and grace. He thanked God for the love of his parents, the support of the school, the medical staff that had helped him so much. But he said, above all, he was thankful for forgiveness of sins, the hope that he had in Christ that he would see his wife again. He was thankful that the Lord had spared him to serve and to father his daughter. And then Carson said these two sentences. He said, he spent his whole time in gratitude. And I want to tell you that that is simply normal Christian living. I, I just think that is. I mean, that's how we should be, just abounding in thanksgiving. It's, I mean, just, ah, if we would just live in light of all that we have, all of God's goodness, we would be like this man. Even in suffering, we would be abundantly thankful. Wouldn't we say that, that thanksgiving comes from being aware of two things, what I truly deserve and what I have received? And th- those, it's so easy to forget those two things. If you think of it as sort of like, as you, as you, you've probably seen this before, as you grow as a Christian, these two things should seem further and further apart. In other words, a, a, someone who's been a Christian for a long time should, should be able to stand before the Lord and say, I see more than ever how little I deserve of your goodness. I deserve truly your judgment. I really deserve it. I, I deserve death followed by hell. I deserve my sins to be paid for, your righteous wrath to be poured out on me. I really deserve that. And when you first become a Christian, you see that to some degree, and then as you grow, hopefully it becomes more and more. You go, wow, I really don't deserve God's kindness. I really don't deserve God's favor and mercy. And then the same time you start growing in your awareness of how much Christ has given you in himself. You go, wow, I have been forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. He's making a place for me where I'm going to have a resurrected body. I'm going to live with him forever under the smile of the triune God. I'm never going to have to deal with any of the trials of life in eternity. Coming, we're going to be, everything ends up great around the throne. It's never ending, unimaginable wedding feast, wedding supper of the lamb. That's in my future. And, And as you grow as a Christian, you see it more clearly at times, right? It's like a cloudy day where the clouds part and you see this beautiful mountain range and the clouds come back. Our sin comes back. But there are moments we see it more clearly. And as time goes on, you go, I really don't deserve anything. I've been given everything. And as those two parts move apart, it's the cross that bridges the gap between those two spots. And so the wider that gap gets, how little I deserve, how much I've been given, and how holy God is, the more the cross becomes enormous in our, perifer- in our, in our view. And, and as that grows, thanksgiving and joy has to abound, like Paul says, abounding in thanksgiving. Good, that's so good. Can you guys help us understand what might have been these, the philosophy and the empty deceit? Deceit's bad, empty deceit's worse. That's a really bad. So tell us about what could be going on here in 8 and 9 and about that whole caution problem that they have. I, I will tell you that uh, I will confess that for, for years, and I still feel this way, trying to understand the error that the Colossians were facing is not an easy task. I've always felt uncomfortable trying to explain it because I never feel like I have a strong grasp on it. So I will give you a vague (laughs) explanation. Next week, we'll deal a little bit more with the specifics. But here are the things I think that are pretty clear in the letter. And we'll see if next week we can get a little further down the road on this. For sure, there's got to be a a Jewish element that has distorted the gospel in some way. Because he's going to mention in verse 16 and 17 Jewish laws like the Sabbath and festivals and the new moon and he mentioned circumcision and us, uh, some other things. So you, you've got Old Testament law somehow, Jewish views somehow mixed into this worldview. But you also have some kinds of pagan r- views and religious views of the time period that, was, that it was existing in. So 
it sounds like you had people who were probably giving lip service to Jesus as being very important to the Christian life. I don't think that they were outright just immediately flat out denying Christ from the get-go. I think they were, they were giving some words of affirmation to Jesus, but they were saying, Jesus is great, but let's add a little bit alongside of him. And what you can do is add some of your own actions and works. You can start doing these. Uh, you can see here verse uh, 20, and this is kind of for next week, but verse 20 gives you a glimpse. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world? Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching, teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." So it sounds like some legalistic Jewish and pagan mixed system of thought was coming into the Colossian church. They were giving lip service to Jesus, but they were adding things to Jesus to give you fullness. You can't get fullness in Jesus alone. You need these Jewish rules, these extra ceremonial laws. You need some of this pagan stuff involving worship of angels or some kind of elevation of angels and supernatural beings. If you embrace this other stuff, it will make you full and and complete before God. Jesus is great. But it's Jesus plus your efforts. Jesus plus some of these legalistic rules that you can keep. Jesus plus your diet being altered in a certain way. Do not taste, do not touch, handling things that perish as they are used. If you can add your legalistic works with Jesus and bring some angelic kind of worship and strange religious views into your biblical Christianity, you'll have the fullness that you're seeking. And Paul says, if you add to Jesus, you're going to end up losing Jesus. You're going to end up losing everything. So that, that seems to be part of what's going on, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you're saying, one pastor just said, uh, the great problem with these empty philosophies is that they center in man and not in Christ. It was a man-centered philosophy, and people were talking about it could be wrapped all nicely, like this is the higher life, the better life, or whatever, but you've got to look through that, and in the center it was man-centered, and I think somebody said, whatever will lead you away from Christ, you'll lose, like if you take that. No matter what they're promising you on the outside, this leads you away from Christ, you, you lose from this. And one guy, he made me laugh. He, he, was, he said that, uh, he talked about spam. He said, he's not spam on your computer. He said, there's spam that you can find in the cheap meat department in your local grocery store. He said, it, apparently it has six ingredients. He said, but you don't know what's in that stuff, is what he said. Like, it's a mystery meat. And he said, he said, basically what Christ is saying, why are you messing around with spam when you got filet mignon with Jesus? Now, Jesus is infinitely better than filet mignon. But the idea is, I thought that was just a helpful way to grasp this. Why are you messing with this cheap meat? You have Christ. You have all you need. He has satisfied you completely. Why would you ever wander away? And I think you keep that idea there before us, that Christ, we have all in Christ. Fullness, we've received grace upon grace from Christ, from his fullness, and don't, don't lose sight of, of that. I love that Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Everything else is rubbish, and it seems like verse... Scott, you have to love verse 9. I should have your name written by verse 9 here in love for that verse. That, so many things that you talk about remind me of verse 9. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great verse. I, I think one, one guy mentioned, like, you have a, you're at the ocean, you have a bottle, and you, you fill up the bottle, and the ocean is not depleted at all, but your bottle is completely full. That's the idea, like, Christ is, there's fullness in Christ. Uh, and going back to that John passage, John 1.16, about we've received, from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. And again, the, the same pastor that I quoted earlier, he had just had a great sermon on this text. He said, all Christians have received grace on top of grace from, from Christ. We have guilt and we receive pardon on top of pardon. We have weakness. We take our weakness to Jesus and we get strength from, from his fullness. We have fear and we receive assurance from, from Jesus. We have despair and we receive hope on top of hope. 
because in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And if you have Jesus, you have all you need. He satisfies you completely. So again, it's just, he's lifting up Jesus again and again, and that's exactly what we need to hear. Let, let me, let me re, so let's reread uh, verses 8 and following just to get the flow here. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So just pause there. Any system of thought, any ideology, any belief, any religion, no matter what it is, if it is not according to Christ, it is going to be deceitful, empty, and a, a, a kind of philosophy that will take you captive and lead you astray. Jesus has to be what it accords with. So Jesus is the standard by which we measure all that we believe, all that we know, all that we teach, all that we uh, are, are set our lives uh, to live according to. If it's not according to Christ, it could look really good on the surface. It's deceptively so. It says here, uh, empty deceit. It's deceitful. It looks promising. It looks glittery. It looks attractive. And yet, if it's not according to Christ, it may lead us somewhere. And in the end, it will be empty. It will be vain. And it will not give us what it promises to give us. So keep going, verse 9. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So you have here temple language, right? So in the Old Testament, Exodus ends, the last chapter, Exodus 40, they finish the tabernacle. Remember, all the people had all that gold and all the jewels from the Egyptians, and they're putting them all together to make this beautiful uh, tabernacle in accordance with God's very careful instructions. Remember, Exodus just has chapter after chapter of the, the blueprints for the tabernacle and how it is made. And you say, what's the big deal? Why are we spending chapters dealing with the kind of curtains that we're dealing with and the kind of poles and how it's all made? It goes on for a long time. Why? This must be very important to God. Why does he spend so much time describing the tabernacle? Because the last chapter of Exodus, Exodus 40 the glory of the Lord comes off Mount Sinai, essentially, right? It's been up on Mount Sinai for a long time, at the end of this year or so. And the glory of God comes over and it comes down on the tabernacle and it fills the most holy place, the holy of holies. And it is so scary, fire and smoke are everywhere, that even Moses is unable to enter in to the, to the tabernacle. Moses, who stood up on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days, he even cannot enter in. And so what happens? Exodus ends, and the very next verse is Leviticus 1.1, and you say, why does it go to Leviticus? Because the next 16 chapters of Leviticus are all about standing at the foot of the tabernacle door and saying, how can anyone who's unclean get in there? And the answer is animal sacrifice. That's why Leviticus, the first half, is all about animal sacrifice, because here's what we're seeing. To dwell where God is, we have to be made clean by blood that is not our own. Uh, the, the, the life of, is in the blood, and the blood must be shed for our life to be, to be in God's presence. Well, when Jesus shows up in John 1, it says that the Word became flesh, and the, the Greek word is literally tabernacled. He dwelt. He tabernacled among us. So Jesus is the place now. We don't go to a building. We don't go to a tent. We don't go to Solomon's temple or Herod's temple. Where do we go to meet with God? God's full deity dwells in bodily, bodily in Christ. So Jesus is all of God that we need. He is fully God present uh, with us. And so Jesus came and dwelt among us. God was dwelling in, in flesh. And so we find our uh, entryway to God through Jesus, the true and better temple. And we also find our, our, our uh, purity before Christ from his shedding of blood. Yeah, do you want to take us through 11 and 12 there, Mark? Yes. Yeah, so again, let me read 10 there. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, even in the Old Testament, starting back in like Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 30, verse 6, right around there, God promises, he says, listen, Israel, you are going to break my covenant. This is predicted from the very beginning. You're going you're to break my covenant. I'm going to bring the consequences of covenant breaking on you as a nation. I'm going to exile you into a foreign, foreign land where you will be punished for your sin. And then, because I still love you and I'm faithful, I'm going to bring you back to your land. And then he says, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, goes something like this. Then I will circumcise your hearts so that you and your children will love me. This, this idea of loving God is the circumcision of the heart, that God will cut away our flesh. He will get rid of what is wrong with us, get our sin nature taken care of, and our hearts will be renewed so that we will truly love God. This is spiritual internal heart surgery, heart circumcision. And here it is saying that at the moment of conversion, the moment you were born again, in that moment, moment circumcision of the heart took place for all Christians. The circumcision of Christ means Christ by His Spirit changed our heart. And the body of flesh has been taken away. It's been defeated. It's kind of a Romans 6 idea there. Mm -hmm. of, of the, we have been moved into a new realm and the old man has been defeated. Now, his, he still has vestiges that are present within us. Indwelling sin is still a struggle daily. But he has been, in principle, decisively put to, put to death at that moment. And he's broken that dominion of sin. He's led us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Scott, what do you have for 12, uh, 10 to 12? Uh. I mean, I think what Marcus said is exactly right. And I think, again, well, we're going to get into it in 13. Do you have any more, Jerry, on 10 and 12 before? No. Okay, well, let me, let me just read uh, 13 and 14. These wonderful verses. And you who were dead in the, your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Uh, two wonderful verses. I mean, just thinking about 13, uh, that we were dead. Again, the same pastor that I listened to, he said, you know, we were not feverish. We didn't have just a little fever. We weren't feeling a little distraught. No, we, we were dead in sin. I mean, just coming back to that, we were Lazarus in the tomb, spiritually dead. And he, Jesus came to us and did this surgery, spiritual heart surgery, and we were born again. He calls us by name. We were born again, came to new life in Christ. But just, I mean, thinking about both sides of this, one of the, one of the guys was saying, do, do we realize how desperate our condition was? He talked about our sin. Like, do we realize how deeply sin was infected our, our lives, infesting everything that we did. We were just, sin was just over, we were overwhelmed by our sin. But he said, we just treat it so casually. We talk about we made mistakes or whatever, but sin, we were just in a desperate condition. It was in that condition where, where, where God made us alive and we should just be filled with wonder at, at this reality of what, what's happened to us. I mean, it's something I think about that uh, I, we should be awestruck by, by the reality of our conversion. Uh, dead in sin, heading to hell, and God had grace upon us, raised to life. And I just think we need to, we need to figure out ways to, to, to keep this, the wonder going. And sometimes it's stories for me. And I, I've told this story at some of the weddings I've done, but I'm going to use a different, slightly different uh, application of it. R.C. Spall has told it. You've, you've read it in, in Holiness of God, if you've read Holiness of God. He tells the story when he was six years old, 1945. He's playing stickball, streets of Philadelphia. It's finally his turn to bat. He's up to bat. He's ready for the pitch. And he can't even get one pitch. Pandemonium breaks out all around. And people are hooping and hollering, yelling, banging on trash cans. He's like... What in the world? He's six years old. I just want to play stickball. I just want to get, get the pitch thrown to me. What's going on? He can't figure it out. He turns around. His mother is racing out of their apartment building, tears racing down her eyes. And she picks up R.C. Sproul. She kisses him and she says, peace at last. The war is over. End of World War II. Their, their dad was going to come home. And it's just this beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of good news 
But it's a beautiful picture of if, if they are celebrating, which they should have, with tears and with joy and celebration, this peace of World War II, how much more should we celebrate peace with a holy God, reconciliation with God? There should be incredible joy. So stories like that can help me just think, wow, I should be that much more joyful in light of what's happened to me. And that certainly goes with that thankfulness we talked about earlier, or suffering, joy and suffering, all of those things, if we're thinking of really what happened. Mark? Yeah, th this is why... Studying the doctrine of sin and depravity is not just there to beat yourself up and just to feel terrible about yourself. Studying the doctrine of sin and depravity is studying what you've been saved from. Why wouldn't you want to know how bad it was what God has rescued you from? The, the more I glimpsed the, 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 the true doctrine of I was dead in sin, I was hostile to God, doing evil deeds, I was depraved in mind, my affections were towards myself, my affections were not toward God, I was hostile to His holiness, I was hostile to His law, I did not want to please Him, I did not want to serve Him, I wanted to serve myself, I wanted to do what I wanted to do, I didn't want God's way, I wanted my way. When we realize how intense our sin and our sinful nature is and was, especially pre-converted self, and you go, and God chose to have mercy on me? God looked at 16-year-old me in my rebellion and said, I'm going I'm to turn his life around. I'm going to pour in immense, unimaginable mercy on him. This kid, this kid that's causing all kinds of trouble, getting in all kinds of trouble, causing all kinds of issues. I'm going to reach down, God of heaven, I'm going to pick this one and I'm going to turn him around. I'm going to give him affections for me, love for my word, love for my son, love for the gospel, forgive him everything he's ever done, give him an eternal inheritance that will never perish. If I don't want to know the doctrine of sin, I don't want to know the gospel very well. And if you want to be stirred by the gospel, realize how wicked you were before Christ got a hold of you and how wicked there still is wickedness within us. Don't be unaware. But, but knowing how deep the debt was and how high a price he paid, those things should not be around just to make us go around, oh, I'm so terrible. No, look what Christ has done. Look at the kind of mercy this God has displayed in my life. Where would I be if God had not intervened in my life? That, that's, what, uh, that's what that doctrine is meant to do. Got to tell a quick story about Carter Hart. We should all be telling stories about Carter. <laughs> but uh, I sent him three pages about sin. And the first, his first comment was, that's so encouraging. And I just thought, I don't, that wasn't the, the, what I was really expecting. But it was his heart was thrilled because God had saved him from, from that, from being dead. And in trespasses, in the uncircumcision of the flesh. And then look what, it's God made him alive. God made alive with him, having what? Now there's a list. Forgiving us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Any comments on those yeah. Um, things? Yeah, just on 14, you got to love 14. 14 is just an amazing verse. Uh, it's sort of like this, this giant IOU people have talked about. One commentary says, our sins stand as conclusive evidence that we have failed to give God that allegiance. And so that document is against us and condemns us. Uh, I think one pastor just said his document with all his sins would be miles and miles long. Uh, I think another guy just said, uh, our sins are a mountain of bankruptcy. And another guy just said, what a disturbing document this would be. I mean, this massive document. But this other pastor that I listened to again, Dale Davis is his name. I've got to give him credit. Just a great sermon on this text. He said, I can, see, I can see my document. He said, I can see my name in bold letters on the top of that document. Then he said he can't, he couldn't, he can't make out what, what's on there. He said, it's, it's in uh, too fine print to make it out. So he has, to, he has to get closer to see what's actually on there. And I have to get really close. And then I, he said, I get right up next to this document that's got, you know, the fine print. He said, lo and behold, I find that the document is blank. He said, it's empty. 
I realize it's blank. There isn't any writing on my IOU. Jesus has wiped it all away. I mean, that's just the beauty of it. You think of the sins, and you think, wow, look at this massive list of sins. You get there, and it's absolutely clean because God takes it and he puts it in his son's hand. I mean, that's the, the other thing is Jesus is, is sinless, and he's, he's never done anyone any harm. He's gone around doing good his whole life, and yet he takes this sin willingly to the cross. I mean, it's just amazing. Four, 14 just should fuel us every time we come that to That nailing it to the cross, Mark, can you tell us about even uh, how our sins were, were nailed there? Yeah, I mean, obviously when they crucified people, as you heard with Jesus, they would take the charge against the person and nail it over the head. So here is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. His charge was that he was an insurrectionist trying to overturn the Roman government. He was against Caesar, and he was unsubmissive to the Roman authorities. So therefore, capital punishment, he deserves to die. Here is Jesus claiming to be king of the Jews is the idea. That's the charge over his head. So if, if Jesus, God, God takes our record of that. So just, just take a second here. Just think for a minute here. Because C.S. Lewis has this wonderful comment. He says, we have, a, we have the strange notion that mere time cancels sin. I kind of have half forgotten it, so God must have half forgotten it too. If it hasn't been covered by the blood of Jesus, it is as vividly clear in the mind of God as some high-definition recording of something I did a long time ago. The, the Lord has all the records. Daniel 7 says the books will one day be opened. Of all the deeds of all the people, there, there, there's these books, Revelation 20, the books, all the deeds of all the people are, are there. The, the, the dead, small and great, the kings and the, and, and the servants of the earth are all there, and God will go through. And if my, if my name has not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if I have not had my sin covered by the blood of Christ, just imagine what that would be like. God looks at your life, however many decades he gives you. Say he gives you 80-something years of life, and you look back, and you start working through. And as early as you can remember, he starts looking at acts of selfishness, pride, something that looked good, but you know the motives were bad. And he just starts walking through day one, day two, day three. Imagine the immense weight and sense of guilt, the desperation that you would feel of, I need someone to handle this. I need someone to take care of this for me. And imagine if I was at that point where I had not trusted Christ, God's saying, okay, now you're going to be punished for each of those sins. Perfect justice will be done. I am a God who's going to give perfect justice for all the sins. And here, you're going to receive what you deserve. But then what, what this passage is saying is, if you turn and trust Christ, God takes that, those books, this gigantic record of our sin. He takes it away and it is nailed above Christ's head on the cross. It is nailed up there where all the crimes are written of a crucified person. And God punishes Jesus so he doesn't have to punish you. And all that stuff is taken care of. And, and Jesus can say that incredible statement. If we get bored with this statement, something is wrong with us. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It's done. Paid in full. There is nothing more that needs to be done. Nothing more that needs to be paid. You know, I heard an illustration one time where... Imagine, you know, you're, you're dealing with sin. It's almost like you're trying to dig stuff up and deal with it. You're, you're trying to work really hard to get rid of it. Because listen, you, you can just put the shovel down. Don't worry about the pile of dirt that you've got left there. Don't try to finish this job on your own. Just put the shovel down, turn to Christ. It's all taken care of. It is canceled. It is done. There is no more sin for us to atone for. And th that is the, like, that's the astonishing truth that's going on here. That he, look at verse 14. Having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And just a word about this here. 
this is a remote passage. Zechariah chapter 3 has a scene where Joshua the high priest is standing in the presence of God, and there's an angel there, and Satan is there, the accuser. And the high priest, much to everyone's shock, is not dressed in all the white perfect vestments and clothes that a priest should have when he goes to stand in the most holy place. Instead, Joshua is covered in filth. His clothes are absolutely defiled. This is utterly shocking to an Israelite. The high priest going in to see the, the Lord and is covered in filth, obviously illustrating the sin of the people of God. And Satan stands up. Satan, as you know, his name, Satan, means the accuser. That's what he is. That's what he does. So Satan stands up and points at Joshua and just says, look at this guy. This guy is filthy. He's defiled. Get him out of here. He deserves to be cast away. He deserves to be thrown away. And the Lord asks for perfect clothing to be put on this priest and for his filthy clothing to be taken away. This is where R.C. Sproul got his children's book from, was from this passage, The Priest with Dirty Clothes. And that picture there takes you back here where Satan's one weapon it's not the stuff you see in the horror movies. It's not all this weird stuff. Satan's weapon, the, the only real weapon he has against human beings is unforgiven sin. He just makes accusations. And if, if the sin is not forgiven, his accusation is correct and it stands and you will be condemned. That's what Satan does. He is the accuser. He accuses people to one another. He accuses people to God and he accuses God to people. He makes you not want to trust God's character. He makes God want to throw you out and he makes us want to hate one another and just sow discord among the brethren. That's what Satan does. He's the accuser. Well, Satan's one weapon is unforgiven sin. At the cross, his one weapon was taken out of his hand. For those who are in Christ, Satan can go on all day long about all that I have done. You know, there's a, I think a hymn. I know all, a, Satan can name all the sins I've ever done. I know them all, I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. That's the truth of what happens here in the gospel. Of course, God knows his omniscience. But as far as his judicial act, he has forgotten our sin. He has blotted it out like a thick cloud. He has thrown it as far as the east is from the west. So Satan goes to rise up to accuse us. He's got nothing to say. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Christ Jesus died. He's at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? You, you, you can see there that the principalities, powers, and rulers of this world, the demons and the forces of Satan, they cannot ultimately get the victory over us because the record of that has been wiped out, taken away. He is disarmed, and now Christ has triumphed over him and shamed him because the accuser has nothing whereby to accuse the saints of God. Just a quick, quick story from that. Uh, Martin Luther, apparently, I got it from a commentator, so I may not get all the details. Papa Fred can clar clar clarify it later. But apparently he had a dream, Luther had a dream where Satan came and was accusing him, bringing him scrolls. He would bring these scrolls with the record of Luther's sin. Did you, did you commit these? And Luther would say, yes, I did. And he would bring another scroll. Did you do this? Yes, I did. Scroll after scroll after scroll. He was showing, did you do this? Did you do this? Yes, I did. And then he was feeling, you know, depressed at the end of it. And then uh, Luther said, it is true, every word of it. But right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sinners. Exactly what you're, what you're saying. You, you, he, he cleaned the clock, I think is what one pastor said, uh, of uh, Satan there at the cross. He, he removes what he can accuse us with. We just upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. When we're tempted to despair, we look again to Christ. Just, I want to add, this does not mean you get a clean slate. You don't get a clean slate. You get Christ's slate, right? It's, it's not, okay, your sin is taken away. Now start over and try hard. That's a clean slate. No one wants a clean slate. You'll fail again. We, we, our slate full of sin is taken away and canceled and Christ's perfect record of righteousness, his slate is given to us. So, so we're, we're not sitting here going, okay, at least my sin's gone. Now I got to really try hard. No, 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 no. We, we, we simply have to rejoice in and be confident in what we already have been given in Christ. That's great, Mark. Would you pray for us? Heavenly Father, we 
uh, we know that we have, as First John says, I write these things that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God, we are so thankful that you sent us a perfectly righteous, wrath-bearing sin substitute in Christ Jesus, your one and only Son. And God, I thank you that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, that we have been given a status of acceptance and righteousness through Christ's perfect obedience, and all of our sins, past, present, and even our future sins, have been canceled, they have been wiped clean, they have been taken away, and in the courtroom of God, as far as our judgment goes, they are not to be brought up against us ever again. And God, I pray that we could live in the sheer joy and freedom of that, that we would not for a second use it to justify sin, that we would not use our freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil, but that through Christ we would love and serve one another because we have been greatly loved and served in Christ. I pray now for our conversations around tables that they would be edifying and helpful, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.